Well, please turn back with me in your Bibles to Genesis 16, which we read earlier. It'd be helpful for you to have that passage open as we come to study it together this morning. And I've titled our, our study this morning, as you can see from the bulletin, Our Mess and God's Grace. Our Mess and God's Grace. Some people can barely bring themselves to look at messy situations of various kinds. Um, Some people take a strange sort of delight in it. Maybe you're the sort of person who loves to watch one of those sort of crisis or catastrophe scenes in a TV show or a movie where things escalate very quickly. It starts off just one little incident and it just grows into total pandemonium, sometimes for comedic effect. Um, We've seen the Paddington Bear movies a few times in our house in recent years. Um, Paddington tends to mean well, but whether it's with paint or water or marmalade, things often just escalate into an awful mess. Some people find those antics very funny. Other people just can't watch it, even when it's just made up and a bit of fun, because they just don't want to think about what it would be like to actually have to clean up that mess. Maybe you're the sort of person who can't stand watching someone getting something wrong. Maybe as you watch your little child trying to keep the colouring pencil within the lines, you just end up colouring the page for them because you can't abide the thought that they'll make a mess. Well, if that's the kind of person you are, and even if that's not the kind of person you are, uh, you probably find Genesis 16 a hard read today. This is a chapter in which believers, believers, make a terrible mess. The consequences, some of the consequences of this mess are in fact still being felt in the world today. I mentioned several weeks ago when we looked at Abraham's blunder in going from Canaan down into Egypt. You remember he he went there during a time of famine and lied about Sarai being his wife. And I said, we get a warts and all portrait of Abram in Genesis. Abram, like every other believer in the Bible, he, he isn't airbrushed. He's not presented to us as a perfect man. He's presented to us as very human, imperfect, and no sooner having made great strides in his faith than feeling badly. Now that in itself, of course, doesn't excuse the blunders that some of us might be prone to or, or go through. But it does provide some kind of encouragement, doesn't it, that, that our blunders, as embarrassing as as cringeworthy as they are sometimes, that they're not the end of our salvation. Our God remains faithful, even when we have been faithless. And this is the experience of the great people of faith, even people like Abraham, that when we make a mess, our God still shows grace. And we'll see that as we work our way through the passage today. There's three things I want to draw to your attention from the passage. And first of all, it might sound like a bit of a strange heading, uh, but the first thing I want to mention to you and draw out from the text is a post-covenant come down. A post-covenant come down. You maybe know what it is to have a bit of a come down. You've, you've had some great experience. You've maybe been to some great concert or you've uh, spent time with some of your favourite people that you don't get to see very often You've had a great time, great, great experience. And then a few days later, you're a bit tired and a bit groggy and the experience is long gone and you've had a come down. Well, last week we saw Abram at what must have been one of the most incredible moments in his life when he received this solemn covenant commitment from God. 
<coughs> in uh, Genesis chapter 15. You remember how we saw that God alone took on the obligations of keeping this covenant. This special ceremony took place. The sacrificing of the animals. And it, was, it would have been an awe-inspiring time for Abram. It was a time that he spent in the holy presence of God. It would have stuck with him for weeks, if not months and years afterward. And at times, perhaps, in our own Christian lives, we experience wonderful high points a bit like that. Not exactly like that, obviously, but a bit like that. A wonderful time, perhaps, of corporate worship where a sense of the presence of God was very near Personal devotions that have been particularly wonderful. We felt that we're, we're really soaking up the word and, and learning from it. Or a young person goes off to a Christian camp or serves in short-term mission and is stretched and grows in their faith. A time of perhaps seeing greater spiritual fruit in our lives of one kind or another. These are mountaintop experiences, some Christians would call them. Wonderful high points in our faith. We We don't want them to end. Sadly though, such times do, of course, come to an end. And after the spiritual mountaintop of Genesis 15, Genesis 16 sees Abram and Sarai on a come down, back down to earth with a bump. Just look at chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him No children. And before we move any further today, friends, we need to appreciate how absolutely devastating that would have been for this couple. As it is uh, when it's the case for for many other couples today as well. But we need to think about it particularly in the context, uh, the time and place in which Abram and Sarai lived. and, And think about it from Sarai's perspective in particular. For a woman not to have children in that culture was a total disaster. You wanted your clan, your tribe, to reach its, its maximum potential in terms of wealth and growth and territory held and prestige and respect built up. In order to do that, you had to have children. And the more you had, the better. It's a somewhat different situation from the mainstream uh, culture in our society today where Having children is almost seen as a bigger disaster by some people than not having children. Living standards and career prospects, and even if you listen to certain misguided royals, environmental concerns, uh, they all contribute to pressure on many women to to, to not have children, to have them later in life, or, or to have no children at all. Well, in Abram's time and place, even in the pagan culture round about, Uh, The pressure came on women in a very different way to have children, to have as many as possible. (coughs) And so, ladies, can you place yourself in Sarai's shoes? Some of us or some of our friends or family perhaps know what it's like. The longing to have children and not being able to. The questions that won't stop going round your mind. How is this going to affect our marriage? Will there not be a void in my life if I don't have children? Have, have I done something wrong? Have I failed? And no matter how much anyone tries to comfort you or tell you that those things perhaps aren't the case, that, that's how you feel. And there's no getting away from it. 
And that is surely something of how Sarai must have felt. And to make matters worse for her, her husband is living with the certain hope that he will have offspring. Abram's whole identity, if you like, his future depends on his having offspring. Notice the detail, by the way, (coughs) the detail in verse 3. Verse 3 mentions that after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, they've been waiting 10 years, day after day, month after month, with no pregnancy for 10 years. And of course, they're both very elderly people at this point to be even thinking about the possibility of children anyway. And no matter how often, perhaps over the the months and years, Abram tried to remind himself or tried to remind Sarai, I but remember the covenant commitment God made, that great spiritual mountaintop experience that we had, it starts to feel an awfully long time ago. Where is God now? What is he doing? Why is it taking so long? Have you ever found yourself asking those questions? We haven't perhaps experienced the exact situation of this story, but can we not identify with the the daily grind, the the nitty-gritty, energy-sapping grind of life in this world when we're waiting and wondering what God is doing? Yes, perhaps we say, the last time I was at the Lord's table, it was wonderful, was blessed, but I still have cancer. Yes, I've been a Christian for many, many years, maintained my walk with the Lord, however imperfectly, sought to serve in my church, but my children still are not saved. I believe that God has called me to this job or to this church role or to be a parent, but I'm exhausted. Abram and Sarai have a post-covenant come down, they Encouragement, the blessing of it all seems to be long behind them and their childlessness is still with them. As one preacher neatly sums it up, friends, blessing is often followed by testing. Blessing is often followed by testing. You can be sure, busy spouse or parent or worker, that the very morning that you get good, good, <clears throat> that you get good devotional exercise with the Lord and scripture and prayer, That as soon as you leave that room, there will be a test of patience waiting for you in the kitchen or in the living room or in the workplace. Remember the experience of our Lord Jesus after his baptism. (coughs) That wonderful moment when his father spoke from heaven and the spirit descended upon him. What came next? Forty days of intense testing in the wilderness. And of course the ongoing Attacks of Satan all throughout his life. You can read also of Jesus' transfiguration. Uh, Luke chapter 9, for example, records it for us. Literally a mountaintop experience for Jesus and the three disciples who were with him. But do you remember what was waiting for them down the mountain? A demon-possessed child. And Jesus says, how long will I be with this faithless generation? Talk about a come down. Blessing is often followed by testing. It's why the Lord Jesus has commanded us to watch and pray. It's why Paul could say that 
Oftentimes the very thing he didn't want to do was the thing that he did and he called himself a a wretched man. That's why Peter warns us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. We are not home yet, friends. We are not yet where we want to be. In heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, we enjoy many blessings as believers, but we also face many testings, many pressures and problems. And we must be ready for those and as best we can apply our faith to those pressures and problems. Sadly, that's exactly what Abram and Sarai did not do in this situation. They did not apply their faith. And so having thought about a post-covenant come down, we want to see, secondly, a marriage in meltdown. A marriage in meltdown. And as we look at what happens here and, and the sin of Abram and Sarah, I want you to notice two main things in particular by way of application, perhaps, challenge to us. I want you to see that Sarai schemes and Abram abdicates. Sarai schemes and Abram abdicates. Verse 1 tells us that Sarai has a female servant, an Egyptian woman named Hagar. Interesting to think just by the way, where did Hagar come from? She most likely came back from Egypt with Abram and Sarai after that first mistake that Abram made by going down to Egypt. Just food for thought there. But nonetheless, uh, this is Sarai's servant girl, Hagar. And Sarai's scheme in one level is very, sim- <coughs> very simple. Verse 2, Sarai said to Abram, Behold, <coughs> now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Notice she invokes God's name. She's right to say that God is sovereign in this. But is she almost putting blame on God? She invokes God's name to justify what she's going to suggest. Go into my servant. That's a euphemism, of course, in the original language for sexual intercourse. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now that seems incredibly shocking to us that a wife would ever suggest something like that to her husband. It wouldn't have been quite so shocking to Abram and Sarai, again, because of the culture in which they live. In fact, this was a very routine and accepted practice in their culture. In the case of a wealthy woman who was unable to have children, again, remember that that would have been socially, economically disastrous, particularly for wealthy people. And so this wealthy people, if they couldn't have children, if a woman couldn't conceive, some version of what Sarai does here was what they would do. Either husband would just outright take several wives, practice of polygamy, or his wife would have him use a slave, a servant, as a surrogate and claim the child of the slave as their own. It was just an accepted practice. This is well documented in evidence that we have from that culture, from that time. And Sarai, perhaps in desperation, suggests that she and Abram just do something that, after all, everybody else is doing anyway. That would have been the sort of thinking in Sarai's mind that justified this. We have to have children. Other people do this to have children. Why don't we just do it? But just as we see in multiple other examples in Scripture, friends, when people engage in sexual sin... Sarai's scheme soon brings pain and sorrow. Look at verse 4. Abram went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, 
She looked with contempt on her mistress. And later on, after Sarai appeals to Abram about this and tells Abram to sort this out, we're told that Sarai, in turn, dealt harshly with Hagar. See, friends, the lie that Sarai would have had to persuade herself of is the same lie that people today have to persuade themselves of before they engage in all kinds of sexual sin. It's just physical. It won't mean anything. All that matters, Sarai would have been telling herself, all that matters is that we have a child. It won't bother me in the long run that my husband spent one night with another woman. After all, she's only a slave. But it doesn't work like that. Imagine the change. Can you, can you even fathom the change in atmosphere? What it would have been like walking around the tents of Abram after this happened. Imagine the jealousy and the tension between these two women. Hagar, the young slave, pregnant immediately. Sarai, the old woman, still barren. Imagine the snide remarks and the hateful looks and the gossip amongst the other servants. Imagine the pain that would have caused Sarai in her mind and heart. Sarai's scheme causes her a world of psychological and emotional and spiritual pain. But if Sarai schemes, Abram abdicates. <clears throat> Someone who abdicates, of course, decides that they don't want to face up to their responsibilities. King Edward VIII is perhaps the most famous example um, an abdicator doesn't want to be the one who has to deal with a particularly difficult situation. And here Abram doesn't want to deal with his responsibilities, men, as head of his household. And Genesis 16 is very interesting as you look at the language. It seems to have been written very deliberately to remind us of the fall of Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 3. That's not to say, of course, that Abram and Sarai were sinless up until now. Of course, we know they weren't. But nonetheless, this, this is perhaps the lowest moment in Abram's life. And it is described for us in ways very reminiscent of Genesis 3 of Adam and Eve. Notice, notice in particular the comment at the end of verse 2. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. You remember what God said to Adam back in Genesis 3.17. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, the point, of course, is not that husbands should never listen to, listen to their wives. The point is that neither husbands nor wives nor anybody else should listen to the voice of someone who is leading them away from God's word. Just look at verse 3, Genesis 16, verse 3. Uh, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. Does that not sound very familiar? So Eve took the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. And similarly to Adam in Genesis 3 men. Notice that Abram barely speaks a word in this whole passage. It's Sarai's scheme. It's Sarai who says let's do this and let's do that. It's Sarai who presents Hagar to Abram. And Abram just sort of stands there like a passive, pathetic coward going along with Sarai's sinful scheme. Instead of taking responsibility, sitting down and taking his wife by the hand and comforting her and praying with her, 
Abram abdicates. He takes no responsibility for himself, for his wife, for his family. And then afterwards, when the atmosphere in the house turns so sour and Sarai appeals to Abram to sort it out, look at verse 6. <coughs> Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. In other words, your mess, your problem, you sort it out. What are you complaining to me for? This was all your idea in the first place. This is the mother of his unborn child that Abram's talking about. No matter what sin up to this point has now been committed, Abram has a responsibility to look after and provide for Hagar and his unborn child. Instead, he says to Sarah, I just do what you like with her. Sarai schemes, Abram abdicates, Hagar hits the road. The whole thing is a horrible mess. There's a few lessons, of course, for us to take from it, friends. Perhaps for those of us who are married, one lesson for those of us who are married, but other lessons for all of us more generally. Those of us who are married need to realize that the respective sins of Sarai and Abram here are still, in a general sense, the same sins that we will be tempted towards as well. This may not sound politically correct. It is somewhat of a generalization. But ladies, the pattern of Scripture from Eve to Sarai to other women as well is that you may have to deal with the temptation of selfishly and sinfully vying for control. God told Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That there will be this conflict between the sexes because of our fallen nature. And we have a society which is engaging in this nationwide. The the liberal, feminist, woke culture around us is attacking masculinity, trying to neuter masculinity. Doesn't want men and young men in particular to take responsibility and to be leaders at all. It's partly what's led to the complete confusion over gender and sexuality and the war between the sexes that is still ongoing. But the general temptation for men is that of abdication. Not taking responsibility, whether it's in marriage, the home, the workplace, the church. Our temptation, men, at times is to hide, to excuse ourselves, to shift the blame. Rather, men, when there is temptation or difficulty in our homes or our communities or our churches, we are to be there, to lead, to pray, to comfort, to listen, to help. Not because we will have all the answers, not because we're supermen who will just be able to sort it all out with one wave of our, one snap of our fingers, but simply because it's what God has commanded us to do. To be the head of our household, to be leaders in our church and elsewhere as well. And so rather than judge Abraham, we need to realize that often we are just like Abraham. Passive, hiding, not turning up to pray or to lead or to love or to take responsibility. And so we need to ask ourselves, particularly perhaps those of us who are married today, am I scheming? Am I abdicating in any area of my life? Then a more general point of application, which is, friends, that the pain and suffering that Abram... (coughs) 
that Abram and Sarai caused each other, and indeed Hagar as well, whom we haven't even really mentioned yet, that that pain and suffering, it is typical of the pain and suffering that many people around us are experiencing today, be it because of sexual sin or indeed any other kind of sin. This is ultimately where every sin leads us, as it did for Sarai, into a world of pain. And it's easy for Christians to be fretful or judgmental about LGBT influence, to think of LGBT as some sort of faceless force that, you know, some monster for us to be afraid of or to attack. But despite the propaganda and despite the, the so-called fulfilled lives that people are trying to find, be they, be they call themselves gay, straight, trans, or anything else, the reality is that for those individuals, friends... Sexual sin is tearing people apart. There are many people today who have placed all their hopes in a relationship with that person that they've decided to sleep with or in that identity or lifestyle that they've decided to embrace who in fact have ended up as miserable, bitter and broken as Sarai and Hagar did. And it's the same for sins of addiction, sins of whether it be gambling, alcoholism, Many, many other types of what we would call casual, ordinary sins. Outside of committed marriage, sex is never casual. Inside marriage, it's designed to bring two people closer together in every sense. Outside of marriage, it can tear one person in two. And as Christians, yes, we need to be very clear and firm about what we believe about marriage and sexual intimacy. But we also need to be ready to show compassion to those whose sin has caused them perhaps to be left in total misery. And that's what we see when God enters the story here. Compassion in in, in the midst of all the mess. So having thought about post-covenant come down and a marriage and meltdown, thirdly and finally, we see the God who comes down. The God who comes down. Hagar, having been so badly treated by both Abram and Sarai, flees, flees from the household. And we're told in verse 7 that she's found by a spring on the way to Shur. And that means that she was heading back in the direction of Egypt, probably hoping to go back to family, to people who would look after her and her soon-to-be-born child. Instead, however, we're told in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord found her. The angel of the Lord is mentioned roughly 60 times In the Old Testament. And as you look at passages when the angel of the Lord appears. It's obvious that he's not just any other angel. The word angel simply means messenger. Uh, And and this. the, The angel of the Lord. Is never depicted as simply. Carrying a message from the Lord. Rather the angel of the Lord. Speaks with the authority of the Lord. Of God himself. And so this is in some kind. What we call a, a theophany. It's some kind of physical appearance of God perhaps before uh, perhaps the son of God before his incarnation thousands of years later the point is that the angel of the Lord speaks with the authority of God and God has seen the mess that Abram and Sarai and Hagar have made for themselves and rather than give up on Abram or turn his back on this mess Yahweh a God of mercy and grace comes down into the mess. Notice, friends, in his coming down, God deals with Hagar personally 
uncompromisingly and graciously. He deals with Hagar personally, uncompromisingly and graciously. He deals with her personally, first of all. If you look at verse 8, he calls her by name. Hagar, servant of Sarai. Neither Sarai nor Abram have spoken Hagar's name so far in this story. She's just referred to as your servant or my servant. She's just a tool in Sarai's scheme. God knows her name. God speaks to her personally. God shows her personal affection and interest. God also deals with Hagar directly. Notice his question to her in verse 8. Where have you come from and where are you going? Again, reminds us of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve went off running from God. God says to Adam, where are you? God knows the answer to the questions that he's asking of Hagar here. But again, he's calling her out. He is uncompromising. He, he forces her here to deal with her situation. And in fact, he very firmly tells her that she is to go back. She is to stop running away from this household as miserable as her life has become. <coughs> she is to turn and go back. Look at verse 9. Return to your mistress and submit to her. Hagar has been sinned against, but she's also not an entirely innocent party. And she will do no one any good by running away. And so God firmly directs her to go back to Abram's house. To at least go to the, the father of her unborn child. But God also deals with Hagar graciously. He says in verse 10. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. He says that Hagar is going to have a son. Abram's firstborn son. And he'll be called Ishmael, which means God hears. God hears her. God sees her. And Hagar is amazed at the love of this God for her. She says in verse 13, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. There, there's, <coughs> there's a sense of awe there in the original language that Hagar can hardly believe this, that she has seen and encountered God, that God has come down to her, that he has shown her personal grace and compassion. And of course, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus did when he came down into this world. The Lord Jesus, of course, time after time, met people in the midst of their mess and showed them compassion. You remember the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well, a woman who you remember, by the way, had her own history of sexual sin. And Jesus spoke to her respectfully. Remember, it says his disciples come back later and says they were amazed that he was speaking to a woman. Jesus did not look down upon women, no matter what sin they might have had in their past. He spoke to her nonetheless firmly and directly about her need of repentance and forgiveness of sin. And he graciously said to her, I am the one who can provide you living water. And Jesus showed similar compassion to all kinds of people. The woman who touched his cloak in hopes of being healed. The little children that were placed in his arms. The lepers, the tax collectors. All of those people, friends, were like Hagar. They were outcasts. They were, their names would hardly have been known or spoken. They were shunned. They were looked down upon. People whose identity or whose track record of sins made them beyond redeeming in the eyes of society. Yet Jesus came to them personally and directly and graciously. 
And they left the presence of Jesus changed by his grace. And Jesus is still in the business of offering messy sinners unmerited grace. If you have never turned in repentance and confessed your sins, whatever your sins might be, whether you think your sins are the most scandalous that you would never want anyone else to know, or whether they're sort of the respectable sins that we all kind of excuse and make light of, if you've never confessed them today, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who has taken the penalty for our sin upon himself on the cross. God sees you. God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, has come down into this world and gone to the cross and provided a way for your sin to be forgiven. Now, there may still be consequences of your sin that you have to sort out and you have to live with. There were consequences for Abram here. Hagar gives birth to a son. That son is called Ishmael. And verse 12 here makes clear that there will be a degree of friction and tension between Ishmael and everyone else for years to come. Verse 12 says, He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against his kinsmen. There will be tension between the eventual legitimate offspring of Abram, Isaac, and Ishmael. There will be that tension between their people for, well, literally up to the present day, you could say, uh, between those two lines from Abram. Abram also had to literally live with this daily reminder, as Sarai did as well, every day, of how they had allowed, allowed their marriage to be compromised on that one occasion. Not only that, but perhaps because of what Abram did, he's made to wait even longer for a legitimate son. The chapter ends by saying he was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. He'll be 99 before there is any word of Isaac being born. Another 13 years of waiting. And so sin does have consequences, friends. Even when we've been shown God's compassion and mercy, we may still have to live with some of those consequences. Let that be a warning to us. And may I say especially to you young people, not to embark down whatever paths the world or Satan might tempt you to, whatever shortcuts or schemes we might be tempted to, that would disregard God's word and which would lead us into a mess. But nonetheless, let us be thankful for a God who sees our mess, hears our cries, and is willing to come down as he did for Hagar and as the Lord Jesus has done for us so that our mess can be sorted out and our sins can be forgiven. And so if you need forgiveness today, call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've received his forgiveness today, then listen to him as he says, go. And from now on, sin no more. Amen.